Amen. Praise God for that incredible declaration of faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ can do what we cannot do. He provides us salvation, and that is eternal salvation. He and he alone will indeed hold us fast. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Psalm, the Psalms, and we turn specifically today to Psalm 40, Psalm 40, and this morning, if you had made preparation by reading uh, through Psalm 40, then so much of the flow and the structure of our worship thus far this morning, you've seen directly from this text of Scripture. Here in Psalm 40, the psalmist declares for you and me that God's work compels, God's work compels believers to praise Him, and secondly, God's work compels believers to praise Him and continually express their trust in Him. God's work compels believers to praise God and continually express their faith and their hope and their trust in God. As the psalmist delivers this truth, he does so for us in two sections. You'll notice in the first 11 verses, here in verses 1 through 11, the psalmist reminds us that God's work does indeed compel us to walk in obedience to Him. And then here in Psalm 40, verses 12 through the end, is a prayer on behalf of the psalmist. In verse 12, in fact, a, a lament to some extent, but in verses 12 through 17 here, the psalmist reminds us that God's work continually compels us, God's work compels us to continually cast our trust upon Him as we think about this need of continually praising the Lord and continually expressing our faith and our hope and our trust upon God. The psalmist reflects upon that truth primarily in the terms of God being a Savior. Friends, the greatest need of the human heart, the greatest need of my life and the greatest need of your life is that God might save us from our sins. And the psalmist here in this text this morning speaks of their hope and trust in God based upon this fact that God alone is Savior. It reminds me of the text of Scripture in Leviticus. Let's just be honest. Leviticus is one of those books of the Bible we get to. We think, man, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and you get to Leviticus, and you get about three chapters in, and you're like, ain't going to happen this year, Lord. Right? You have to stick with the book of Leviticus because Leviticus has these nuggets that are tucked uh, throughout that text of Scripture. And in Leviticus chapter 11, the Lord reminds us exactly why He has given to His people all of these commands. Why must Israel pay attention to burnt offerings? Why must Israel pay attention to uh, offerings of sacrifice of praise? to grain offerings. Well, listen what Moses wrote for us in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself therefore and be holy, for I am holy. 
You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. And listen at verse 45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus, the Lord has a right to declare, to demand the holiness of the people of God. Why? Because he and he alone is Savior, the seminal salvific expression in the Old Testament is God's salvation of the nation of Israel as they stood at the precipice of the Red Sea and the Lord saved them. The psalmist reflects upon his trust, his desire for deliverance, and he casts that expression solely upon the fact that God and God alone is one who saves. Notice as the psalmist starts making this truth here in verses 1 through 11, God's work of salvation. God's work of salvation compels believers to walk in obedience and notice what else this text will say to us, continually trust God. God's work of salvation compels believers to walk in obedience and continually trust the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. Or you might have heard it translated, out of the miry clay. And look what the Lord did. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. No one can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Notice this sacrificial language here in verses six through eight. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but have given me an ear, an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. God's work of salvation compels the psalmist to walk in obedience 
and continually trust in the Lord. Here in verses one through four, we see the psalmist reminding us that believers gladly trust in the Lord. We get a sense, like last week, from this text of exactly what is taking place in this passage of Scripture. Clearly, we'll see in a few moments as we read verses 12 through 17, that indeed the psalmist is back in trouble again because of of his sin. But in this case, the text is exceedingly clear. At least his sin, uh, God is bringing about a sense of judgment in his life by all of these enemies that are coming against him. They seek to kill the psalmist in this, in this passage of Scripture, and yet the psalmist knows that even in this darkest time of life, he must trust solely and solely in the Lord. Notice how he paints this image of difficulty in his life. I waited patiently for you, Lord. There's no one else to whom I can go to find deliverance. And bless the Lord, he heard my cry. Look what he says in verse two. He drew me up from the miry clay. He drew me up from the pit. For those of you who've had the opportunity to go to Israel, you've walked into a few situations of a miry pit. You've seen a cistern. In fact, right there just outside of the southern steps in Jerusalem, you've gone to St. Peter's Galiintu, uh, and there is an example of what we think might have been the actual holding place of Jesus the night in which he was arrested. Jesus was potentially lowered down into this cistern and held. But what would take place in antiquity, they would dig out these cisterns, and over time, of course, it would fell, and it would slowly begin to leak. And when it leaked, it would create this, this mud pit, essentially, down at the bottom. You did not want to drink that water. And the psalmist is reflecting that he's in a situation in which he finds himself down in this miry pit, down in this cistern. There is absolutely nothing he can do to get out of that miry pit unless the Lord comes through. Part of our problem in modern day America in the 21st century, let's just be honest, Few of us experience situations in life where we think the only way out of this is the Lord's provision. Right? You get a headache today, and what do you do? I don't know about you. I go directly to the medicine cabinet. I open up that ibuprofen bottle. I take three to four pills. I swallow them. If that doesn't work a few hours later, I take some migraine medicine. Right? One of the fascinating things is this uh, group that I'm in with all of our Indian uh, church planters. And I'm always humbled at the request that they send us. We'll get requests almost on a weekly basis. Brothers, would you please pray for so-and-so's wife? She's suffering from fever. Pray that God will heal her. Why? Because in their context, if you've got 101, 102 fever, you don't just go to the medicine cabinet and open it up and take some medicine. 
It's just simply not available. So we don't live our lives, or at least let me not condemn you and condemn solely maybe Lewis this morning. Lewis doesn't always live his life with a sense that unless the Lord comes through in this difficult situation, I'm not going to make it out of the miry pit. I can always find some type of provision that will enable me to escape to a large sense. But notice what the psalmist says. I'm down in this miry pit. I'm in this position of hopelessness. But notice his resolve in the Lord. Friends, as believers in Christ, we can always trust the Lord, not because necessarily what is taking place in my life at the moment is the grandest of all expressions in life. Friends, we can trust the Lord because we know His goodness and His faithfulness that has been communicated through His mighty acts, supremely His act of salvation. And if you're here today and you're living your life apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you are the person down in the miry clay. You are the person this morning in the pit. And try as you may, friend, you will never be able to pull yourself out of that pit. But friend, Jesus has done all that is necessary for you and for me and for your neighbor, and for your co-worker, and for your grandchildren, and for your grandchildren to be rescued from the miry clay, from the miry pit, from hell, from damnation. How? By faith and trust and hope in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look what the psalmist says God does for us. He sets our feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Only God and bring about that sense of peace in our hearts and our lives. As the text of Scripture says, a peace that passes all understanding. This is the sense in which the psalmist is rejoicing in the Lord's work. He is compelled by God's work of salvation to do what? Look what he says here in verse 3. To rejoice to praise a new song you have put in my heart and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The psalmist reminds us that a right response to God's deliverance is a declaration of praise. Friends, this is part of the purpose of why we gather every Sunday morning our gatherings on Sunday morning are meant to be a reflection of this expression. Praise not only in the context of, of singing songs, praise not only in the context of hearing the word of God proclaimed, but also praise in the context as we recount to one another the goodness and the faithfulness of God in our lives. I was sharing with a family before church started that one of the joys of my life is being connected to this body of Christ, but specifically on Sunday mornings. One of my favorite times in all of Sunday morning is the 30 to 45 minutes after church. Some of you 
haven't seen that because you're out the back door within the first 30 seconds. To see the body of Christ communicating with one another. To hear the conversations of God's work, God's deliverance, God's kindness, God's mercy in your life. And friend, let me just say this to you. As a body of believers, that ought to be the heart cry of the redeemed. That ought to be the testimony of our lives and the expression of faith upon our tongues. The psalmist says, I will indeed declare it. I will sing it. Look what he says here in verse 4. Bless is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Our confidence is not to be in humanity. It is to be solely in the Lord. It reminds me of the text of Scripture from John chapter 11 as John is given us an editorial, a reflection upon why so many people are not believing in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And John even tells us in that text that there are even some of the elite in Israel who have believed in Jesus, but for fear of being put out of the synagogue, they do not believe. In other words, they don't fully trust in Jesus. They don't have a salvific faith in the person of Jesus. And you know what John says? You know what the problem is? They fear God more than they fear man. The psalmist reminds us that when our hearts are set in the right disposition toward God, our praise is not directed toward man, but solely toward the work of God. And then here in verses 5 through 8, notice what the psalmist says. Believers walk in obedience because of God's work of salvation. We should desire to walk in obedience because of God's work. Think about it in terms of Paul's writing in the pastoral epistles in which he's continually calling the church to walk in a certain way. Read uh, Ephesians or Colossians. And over and over, you hear this same uh, phrase, walk. Walk, be careful how you walk. This is what the psalmist is saying here. As we reflect on our relationship with Jesus, as we think about Christ's salvific work on our behalf, it should compel us to desire to walk in faithfulness with God. Look how he says it in sacrifice and offering. You have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, or you have given us ears that you have dug for me. What the psalmist is saying is, Lord, you and you alone have prepared us. You and you alone have delivered us. As you think about walking in obedience, as we think about where that act of obedience comes from, at least in the text of scriptures, oftentimes it comes from the idea of hearing. If you want your children to obey, what do you say to them sometime? Come here. I want you to listen to me. What am I ultimately saying? Obey. I want you to hear with the intention of obeying. And the psalmist is saying, look, 
God has done all that is necessary. God has prepared you and me to walk in obedience. Thus, I can't blame God for my failure. I can't blame God for my sin. God has done everything that is necessary for Lewis to walk rightly with God. He's prepared us for obedience. Think of it in terms of Ephesians chapter two. Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, verses eight and nine, but what does he remind us of in verse 10? For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Friend, you can walk obediently with God if by faith you have trusted in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus has promised us in the Gospel of John that for those who have trusted, he has granted to us the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God works within in our hearts and our lives and, and, and relationship to the Word of God to cause us to walk in obedience. Are you walking obediently this morning? As you reflect on your own salvation with God, even at this very moment, do you sense yourself being compelled, thrust, desiring to walk in obedience with God? The psalmist says, as I think about God's good works, I understand that God has rightly prepared me for this act. God has desired for us to do his will. God has caused us by giving us his spirit and his word to do his will. But look what the psalmist also says here. God delights in us walking obediently. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have overcome in the scroll of the book that is written of me. God gives us the instruction for us in how to walk in obedience to him. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is in my heart. The psalmist is reflecting on God's past act of salvation. He is reminding us that we've been prepared to walk in obedience, that God delights in obedience. And maybe this might be a surprise if we're just reading the Old Testament, this passage of Scripture here in verses 6b and 7. But you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Do what? I mean, we just read from Leviticus. We've read, for example, 1 Samuel. But one of the things God reminds us of in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is that the intended purpose is not the act of sacrifice. Israel got it wrong, did she not? She thought that the only thing God was interested in was her, were her actions. But friend, God is more concerned, much more concerned, not about what we do, but what's truly in our hearts. See, friend, you can make every sacrifice of praise today. You can be faithful in your giving. You can be faithful in your participation. You can be faithful in your serving. You can be faithful in sharing the gospel. And did you know, friend, you could be doing all of those things from the wrong motive and with the wrong heart? 
as 1 Samuel 15 reminds us, obedience is better than sacrifice. How's your obedience this morning? Do you delight in walking faithfully with God? Say, Pastor, I'm not quite sure what that means. Well, notice what the psalmist tells us here in verse 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written to me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. God gives us the instruction to do his will. Friend, you don't have to go anywhere else to ascertain the will of God than the word of God. God has clearly spoken to you and to me through his word to guide our hearts in understanding how we are to live our lives in the very will of God. Aren't you grateful that we don't have to go searching aimlessly, looking for how we are to respond, just hoping that maybe, just maybe, I've taken the right step? Ooh, that one worked. Let me try it again. Mmm. Oh, that one was nice too, Lord. But then I step again. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. That was a wrong step. Let me, let me rewind and let me start again. Friend, you don't have to live your life aimlessly looking for the will of God. He has granted the revelation of what he desires of you and me through his word. Thus, friend, if you want to know God's direction for your life, read the word of God. And there, God will direct your steps. What job should I take? Who should I marry? Where should I live? Do I take this promotion? Or do I not take this promotion? Do I buy this car? Or do I not buy this car? God has given us everything we need to make those decisions in life through his word and the spirit takes his word and applies that to our hearts and in confidence we can say, I have moved according to the will of God. The psalmist says, when I reflect on God's acts, when I reflect on God's actions of salvation, I am compelled to walk in obedience. But can we be honest this morning, friend? There's only one who has perfectly walked in obedience to the Father, and that's Jesus. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, for example, that everything he does, everything, every act, every speech, Every step that Jesus takes or speaks is directed by the Father himself and reflecting on Jesus as being that perfect example for humanity. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 picks up here on Psalm 40. And listen what he writes. Consequently, 
When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You see what the author of Hebrews is saying is this passage of scripture is a direct reflection upon the very incarnation and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the one who came perfectly prepared. Jesus himself is the one who has perfectly followed the will of God. Jesus himself is the one who perfectly followed the word of God. And Jesus becomes my example. And Jesus is your example. And so the way in which we measure our faithfulness is not by looking at one another. It's by looking completely and totally to Jesus. Would you measure your life this morning not by how good or bad you think I am, would you, would you measure your life this morning not by how good or bad you think Leslie Talley is? Would you measure your life this morning not by how good you think sweet Miss Dora Erfurt is or is not? Would you measure your life this morning by the standard of Jesus? And as you look to Jesus this morning, just where are you measuring up? Along that line this morning, where do you find yourself standing? Notice what the psalmist does now here in verses 9 and 10. He reminds us that our thankfulness for deliverance is not fully completed until I have given testimony of God's goodness in the gathering of the people of God. Look what he says here in verses nine and 10. I have told the glad news of your Bible, more than likely translates this word deliverance, but this is the same word for righteousness. I have told the glad news of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. Friends, the right expression of gladness, the right expression of joy, the right expression of praise is not in the context of your own home privately. The right expression of praise and worship and adoration for what God has accomplished on our behalf is in the context of the gathering of the people of God. This is the right place for you and me to say, thank you, Jesus. 
This is the right place for you and me to say thank you, Lord, for saving me. This is the right place for us to give thanks for God saving our children. This is the right place for us to give thanks to God for that promotion at work. This is the right place for us to give thanks to God that he has provided for our needs. The psalmist says there is no greater place for you and me to reflect on the goodness of God than in the gathering of the people of God. And it reminds us that one of the aspects, one of the right expressions of worship is our testimony of God's goodness, of God's work, of God's deliverance, of God's salvation. And notice what the psalmist bases this upon. Not anything in his own merit. Did you see the number of times that he says your righteousness, your deliverance, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, How in the world can we sing, he will hold me fast when we know that even after salvation, we still sin against God? Because my salvation from the beginning to the end is not based on me. It's based on the goodness and the kind act of a gracious God in providing the person of Jesus Christ for you and me. We rejoice not on our own merit, but solely and completely on the merit of God. Verse 11, only in you do I trust. Similar to what he's already expressed in verses one and two, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. The psalmist is completely, totally confident in the work of God. We understand these words, your faithfulness and your steadfast love, all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, in which God himself has revealed himself. Notice what ultimately the psalmist is doing here in this passage of scripture. He is making an appeal to the very character of God to the very heart of who God himself is. This is how God has from the very beginning of his relationship with his people revealed himself. One who is faithful, one whose uh, loving kindness is extended to all, whose mercy is given to his people, his steadfast love. It doesn't matter where you are today, friend. Be reminded of this truth. Jesus Our Heavenly Father, the Spirit of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it doesn't matter the journey we're on. It doesn't matter the difficulty in which we find ourselves now or the joy in which I find myself. God is continually faithful. Now here in verses 12 through 17, The psalmist reminds us that God's work compels believers to continually trust in him. God's work compels believers to 
continually trust in him. Verse 12, notice what the psalmist does. He laments his sin. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. I can't even count them, Lord. My iniquities, my sins have overtaken me and and I'm blinded. I, I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. See, what we've done in the context of modern day America is we've taken sins and we've given them a diagnosis. For it's much easier for me to maybe understand or live with myself if I think that what's going on within me is not the problem with Lewis, but some external problem. And so all I have to do is find a doctor who's willing to write me a prescription. I can take that prescription and voila, my sin is covered until the guilt of something else overtakes my heart. Until I step in the wrong direction again that is contrary to the word of God and that guilt compiles itself again. And if I don't rightly confess my sin, it has the temptation to raise its ugly head in a variety of different ways in my heart and in your heart. And the compassion of Jesus is that what he looked out across a group of people who had been following him and they felt like their leader and their movement was coming to a complete end? And what does Jesus say to them? Let not your hearts be troubled. What does Jesus say in, in Matthew? I know that you have a heavy load. I know that life is difficult. But cast your your cares upon me. Your burdens are heavy. Jesus says, bring them to me. I'll carry them for you. Friend, might it be the reason that you find yourself living in such deep, dark depression at this very moment is that sin has so encamped around you that it is so large that you can't even count the number of sins that have taken place in your life and you're in this miry pit. Do what the psalmist has said. Confess those sins before a holy, good, and righteous God. Look how he continues to make this confession of faith here in verses 13 through 17. It's only in you, Lord, that I trust. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. Lord, quickly come to my defense. Let those, who put to sh- let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my heart. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, ah, ah, those who deride me, in other words. Those who look at me and say, oh, look at that silly fool. Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes me, though, uh, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay 
oh my God. Look quickly again at verse 3. Look quickly again at verses 9 and 10. And look quickly again at verse 16, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a new song of praise to our God. May we, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance, of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you, as you know. Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Do you see the corporate nature of this psalm, friends? Three times, the psalmist has called us to the right place of expressing praise to God. Did you know that God has designed this expression this morning for a very specific purpose in our hearts? The psalmist is reflecting upon the importance of the gathering of the people of God. As the people of God gather to corporately express their faith and their trust and their hope in God. Why? Because friends, there are going to be days when chief in the back walks into this sanctuary and he's had a difficult week. And quite honestly, he doesn't even want to be here. But the congregation is going to sing and express faith and hope and trust in God. And guess what it does in his life? It encourages him. None of us can ever know the difficulties are the full expression of all of those difficulties that might be taking place in our hearts and our lives. But friends, God has designed this gathering to be a means of expression of hope and faith and trust and encouragement to the extent that where this gathering is absent, not that it's impossible, but it's not complete and our worship, and our praise toward God. This is the right place and the right time for you and me to corporately praise God, confess our sins, and continually express our faith, hope, and trust in what he has done through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we're grateful for your providential care for us as we confess corporately this morning that we are poor and needy, that we desperately need your deliverance. And corporately this morning, Lord, we ask for your deliverance in our hearts and our lives. As you reflect upon the state of your own heart at this very moment,
Would you spend just a few moments to a few moment, moments this morning, if you're a believer, and just look back over the course of your life and see God's kindness expressed to you in salvation? Do you remember that time in which God saved you? As you reflect on that moment, would you just give him thanks where you're seated this morning for that salvation? See, friends, ultimately what the psalmist is saying to you and me, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God can provide salvation, if he can repair our broken relationship with God, there is absolutely nothing that God cannot do in your life. Maybe you find yourself in a broken relationship this morning. A broken friendship. Maybe you find yourself in a very difficult position at work. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've received an unwanted diagnosis this week. You see what the psalmist is saying, friends? God has delivered you from your sin. He can sustain you through the troubles that life throws our way. Would you cast your care on Jesus now knowing He cares for you? Would you confess to Him now that you are poor and needy? Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, the greatest need of your life is not a new job or who to marry. The greatest need in your life is deliverance from sin. Would you trust in Jesus at this moment and be saved? The Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on Jesus as Lord is an acknowledgement that He's God. Calling on Him as Lord is an acknowledgement that He is King and that we desire to live in His kingdom, that we will walk obediently to His rules expressed in His Word, that we desire to walk obediently to Him. That's your heart's cry this morning. Please know God is one who saves. He will save you from the miry clay. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond in praise with one another. And as we sing, if you're here this morning, you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. Myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. Please feel free to come speak to one of us. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ or friend. You don't have to come to the front and talk to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, maybe you are in that miry clay as a believer and you'd just like for one of us to pray with you. That God would indeed increase your faith. That your hope would be strengthened. We would delight in praying for you.
Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you, may our responses be pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?